a single moment. See how far your support can go at unbound.org. Is this the tiger? This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. The Lakers are back at 500 after a one-point win last night over Toronto. First time they have won consecutive games since December 7th. Strong game from Anthony Davis. He scored 20 of his game-high 41 points in the fourth quarter. AD also had 11 rebounds. LeBron had 22 points and 12 assists. Toronto is staying in town to play the Clippers tonight at Crypto.com. The Clippers are only three games behind Minnesota for the best record in the Western Conference. Tip-off time tonight is 7.30. Four NFL teams are now looking for a new head coach. Tennessee fired Mike Vrabel on Tuesday. Tennessee joins the Chargers, Atlanta, and Washington in the search for a new head coach. Magic Johnson, part owner of the Washington Commanders, hired former Golden State GM Bob Myers to assist him with the Commanders coaching search. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA Talk 1580 and the Empowerment Congress. Pursuing justice through participatory democracy. Listen to KBLA Talk 1580, Saturday morning, January 13th, from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. for an exclusive forum featuring the candidates for L.A. County District Attorney. Join KBLA's Tavis Smiley as he helps navigate what promises to be a forum full of fire when the candidates trying to unseat current LADA George Gascon come together on stage on the campus of the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science. Again, it's the L.A. County District Attorney Forum, live, exclusively, on KBLA Talk 1580, Saturday morning, January 13th, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., helping to raise your civic IQ. We're KBLA Talk 1580. We've got your black. Wisdom. I'm Tavis Smiley. Delighted to have you uh, tuned into our program in this hour, and it's going to be quite the hour. Here's where we're going. Can acts of peace overcome systems of oppression? That's a deep question. Can acts of peace overcome systems of oppression? Professor Eli S. McCarthy joins us right now 
for a critical examination of nonviolence as both an ethical ideal and a practical tool for social change. Uh, strap in. We're about to <laughs> we're about to get deep uh, in this hour. I'm delighted to to welcome uh, Professor Georgetown Professor Eli S. McCarthy to this program. Professor McCarthy, how are you today, sir? Hey, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for the invitation. Looking forward to the conversation. No, likewise. Good to have you on. Thank you for the hour. There's a whole lot to unpack. We're going to take every minute of it to make the most of it. So thank you uh, uh, for the opportunity to uh, to interrogate you, as it were. Let me let me start with a broad question. We'll narrow our way through this hour. But what what is it like and what are you doing? What's the end? What's the aim? What's the syllabus? Give me some sense of what one does on a campus like Georgetown or any place else when one is teaching Justice and Peace Studies. Take me inside your classroom. We're going. We're going to basically audit your course for the for the full hour here. But but what 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 what's, what are you what are you doing when when you're teaching a course, Justice and Peace? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, in my classroom, one of the main goals is to broaden the moral imagination about what might be possible in difficult situations of conflict, but also to see the interconnections between justice-making and peacemaking if we want a more kind of sustainable um, just peace. So, for example, in the, in the classroom, you know, we usually will start off with student presentations. So they bring in some form of art, like a song or a poem or an image, and they share for about five minutes about how that art helps us better understand justice and peace, but also uh, get to know their story of how they've come to understand these practices. Um, and then we, you know, we'll go through some of the readings and have some large group discussion and see videos, perhaps. Um, and then towards the end of the class, the students will, a couple students will lead a facilitated discussion on a question or two that really came up for them in the reading and they want to dive deeper in. So that's kind of a, a general format of a class. Mm -hmm. um, we definitely watch um, videos like Pray the Devil Back to Hell when the women in Liberia use nonviolent resistance to end a civil war in 2003 mm -hmm. and uh, get rid of the dictator, Charles Taylor, and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. give, give me give me a sense of um, the reading. I'm, I'm just curious. I'm, I'm going I'm going to jump deep into this conversation in a moment. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm again, since we're auditing your class, I'm trying to get a sense of what the students actually get every day from you. Um, and I, I don't need, I don't need you to run the entire syllabus. Just give me some sense of the readings that your class is assigned when it comes uh, to peace and justice studies. Sure. So some of the core texts are The Little Book of Conflict Transformation by John Paul Lederach, uh, The Little Book of Restorative Justice, The Little Book of Race and Restorative Justice, and then we read a, a Just Peace Ethic Primer, and we also, uh, the documentary on Gandhi, kind of the full-length film, and there's a, a shorter text called Hope, uh, Terror or Hope, the other 9-11, which is basically an introduction to Gandhi. So um, there's a textbook called Invitation to Peace Studies. Um, so those are some of the core texts, mm -hmm. but you know, some of the themes will be things like 
um, restorative justice, conflict transformation, um, what is violence, what is nonviolence, um, nonviolent movements, interpersonal nonviolence, militarism, war, terrorism, environmental justice, racial justice, mm-hmm. I heard, I, justice. I heard Gandhi. I heard Gandhi. Is King anywhere in there? Yeah. Yeah, we read um, Beyond Vietnam from mm. Martin Luther King in the militarism section, mm-hmm. um, and then certainly draw on some of his themes of uh, virtue and so forth when we talk about the ethics of nonviolence. Yeah. Um, just getting started in this hour with um, Professor Elias McCarthy, professor at Georgetown, uh, teaches justice and peace studies. I uh, want to just uh, lay the foundation for what, what actually happens in this classroom. So now you get a sense of what he's teaching students. There's all kind of conversation these days about what students are being taught and free speech on college campuses, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought I would just start by getting a better sense of what actually happens inside his classroom. When you say you teach peace and justice, uh, that raises a question for me. Well, what are you doing? What are you teaching? Who are you reading? What are you watching? So I think I've got that out of the way. Now that that foundation is laid, we can have a serious conversation, a critical examination, a crit- critical examination if I can say it, of nonviolence as both an ethical ideal and a practical tool for social change. In many respects, you say nonviolence these days, you quote Gandhi, you quote King, you get laughed out of the room or off the stage. There's no real conversation about these concepts in the public square, but we'll talk about it today for the rest of this hour on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Tavis Smiley continues when we come forward. What is dedication? My biggest fear in the middle of my addiction was that my kids wouldn't have a father. And I started thinking, you know what? This isn't my story. I definitely had to become a better man to be a better father. It's important to me that my kids are empowered and truly believe that if if they can think it, they can do it. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Joey from Vermont, a farmer trying to get through the winter. Adriana from South Carolina, a single mother living paycheck to paycheck. Liam from Ohio, an injured father struggling to provide for his family. Hi, I'm Shanola Hampton, and I support the Feeding America network of food banks because they help provide over 6 billion meals to people in need each year. Learn more at feedingamerica.org. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 You are indeed. I'm glad about it. And I've been looking forward to this hour. Uh, we promoted it uh, a couple of days ago that we would have this conversation because it, it seems to me that the timing of a dialogue like this could not be more propitious with all this happening in the world. Uh, what's happening in this country. We we're just talking earlier in today's program about uh, in these um, what we can expect to be increased violence. Uh, in um, this campaign season. So there's uh, there's war, there's conflict, um, there's violence uh, all around us in this country and around the globe. So the timing could not be better, particularly as we move toward the King holiday just a few days from now, to talk about nonviolence and whether uh, it uh, is still pregnant with the kind of power uh, that we saw um, during the Civil Rights Movement, that we've seen during the time of Gandhi, uh, in fact, that we saw 
uh, in South Africa and around the globe in Tiananmen Square. There have been all kinds of examples historically of the power uh, of nonviolence. And yet, as I said a moment ago, these days you say nonviolence, um, they will laugh you out of the room. Uh, that does not uh, get taken seriously as a strategy, as an option uh, these days. And so I'm delighted and honored to have Georgetown Professor Eli S. McCarthy on this program for this critical examination of nonviolence, as I said earlier, as both an ethical ideal and a practical tool for social change. Um, Professor McCarthy, let me, let me ask you this. Um, when, when it comes to the notion of nonviolence, I mentioned a moment ago that there are any number of examples historically where we've seen it work so well. You teach this stuff every single day. How can something literally have changed the world uh, in various parts of the globe and yet not be taken so seriously as a strategy in real time in any number of conflicts? Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, I think that part of it is kind of a narrow understanding of nonviolence. Mm -hmm. Um where some of us think of it either as kind of passivity or not engaging or just being neutral. And I think those are kind of short-sighted ways of understanding nonviolence. Um, and I think the other part of it is the stories that were told, whether in school or through the media or through political leaders, um, rarely, or at least inadequately, tell the stories of powerful nonviolence mm. engaging in conflict and transforming conflict. We tend to hear the stories of um, militaries or these sort of uses of violent force to deal with difficult problems. So our imagination um, is sometimes kind of truncated. Mm -hmm. When you say that your effort every day with your students and indeed in this conversation is to help us broaden our moral imagination. I love that phrase uh, that the challenge in real time is to broaden our moral imagination. Unpack that for me, please. Yeah. So, you know, one way of thinking about the moral imagination is that often we may be told if there's a really difficult situation, somebody's under threat or there's an aggression happening, you know, you either have two options. You either are to kind of dominate or even destroy that other person or group, or you are to kind of be passive and either accept it or just kind of um, avoid the conflict if you can. So the moral imagination is about going between those two options and saying there's a whole range of different types of active nonviolent strategies that can often kind of shift the dynamics of a situation. So how can we broaden our moral imagination to at least be more aware of those, mm -hmm. but then also to develop the capacity or the virtue or the character habit to not only see those options, but be more likely to choose some of these active nonviolence options and to sort of stay with them uh, when things get difficult and there might be struggle uh, involved in the resistance. 
Mm -hmm. You 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 want us to consider nonviolence both as an ethical ideal and as a practical tool for social change. I want to split those two things up and take them one at a time. Let me start with nonviolence as an ethical ideal. Um, give, give give me your best presentation on the virtue of nonviolence as an ethical ideal. Yeah. So one of the tendencies in our culture is to think of nonviolence as primarily a rule against violence mm -hmm. or nonviolence as this strategy that we might use when we think it, it'll work to obtain our kind of goals or objectives. Um, so what, one of the ways I propose thinking about nonviolence, and this really draws on King and Gandhi and Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who's a great Muslim nonviolent leader in the 1900s, and even back into uh, Christianity and the role of Jesus and Buddha and so forth, is that nonviolence is more than a rule or a strategy. It's a, it's, a, it's a call to develop a certain kind of character, to become a certain kind of person. Mm -hmm. And this is what we mean by a virtue. Um, so the language of ethical ideal, I'm not sure that really really fits um, with thinking of it as a virtue, a character habit. Mm -hmm. And we can develop this character habit by our daily, ordinary choices, right? How we treat the people we live with, how we treat friends and coworkers, how we treat ourselves, what we consume or not consume, like all of those choices are either going to help us cultivate this habit of active nonviolence, or they're going to develop other habits, which are going to make us perhaps less equipped to deal with difficult, difficult situations. So the virtue of active nonviolence here is about a habit that helps us make choices that sort of light up the truth of our equal dignity and our kind of deep interconnectedness as, as human beings and with the earth as well. Mm. And it's also a habit that helps draw adversaries toward partnership. And this is something that, that King talked about a lot and, mm -hmm. and many others as well. Mm -hmm. When you say with earth as well, that jumped out at me. Unpack that for me right quick, with earth as well. Yeah, so we are interconnected with other people as well as with our ecology, with our, our global um, ecological system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our health um, is very much interdependent with the health of our ecosystem, whether you look at the uh, areas in Amazon or in the, the DRC in the Congo, Great Lakes region of Africa, you know, there's these key spots around the world that we really need to take care of uh, ecologically in order for the, the health of the entire planet and humanity to really um, survive and, and thrive. So when we're talking about active nonviolence here, you know, it's not just about seeing the value of the other person nearby, but sensing this deep interconnectedness with all all of reality and all of being, which includes the earth and our ecosystems mm. and so forth. And the more we open up to that deep interconnectedness, the more we're, we're likely to lean into kind of active nonviolent strategies when difficult challenges mm. come up. 
Hadn't thought about it in that way, and that's why uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad you said uh, with Earth as well, and I'm glad I interrogated that because we are on the eve. Uh, certainly, my audience in Los Angeles knows, uh, and um, this is about to become a big national story in the next uh, 48 hours. We're making a major announcement uh, about uh, a climate justice campaign for 2024. The nation will be hearing about it uh, literally in the next 48 hours, but a major announcement here on the West Coast about uh, climate justice, specifically in people of color. Um, so I'll hold on that for the moment. But one of the things that we are challenged to do in this campaign for the entirety of this year uh, is to link social justice and climate justice. And you have done that just uh, quite brilliantly, linking social justice and climate justice. And many people don't get that. And certainly uh, as we move again toward the King holiday, um, there is a link uh, that's pretty easily made between those two things social justice and climate justice and you again did that quite quite brilliantly so thank you for that let me let me circle back now to this notion of uh, of um nonviolence being essentially a, a character trait uh, to your point not so much an ethical ideal as i mentioned i i i i received that pushback uh <laughs> it is more of a character trait and i think of my, my my friend the late great Maya angelo who said to me on more than one occasion tavis courage is like a muscle courage is like a muscle um, you have to practice it. You have to work it out just as you do any other muscle in your body. When you hit to the gym, head to the gym every day, it's courage. It's a muscle and you have to, you have to work it out. It just doesn't just develop on its own. It doesn't just happen overnight. You have to work it. It seems to me, uh, back to my Angelo's point that it takes courage to love. It seems to me that it takes courage to be nonviolent. So it may, may, may very well be a character trait, but it's not a character trait that is so easily developed particularly these days that's my thesis but tell me how you how you view that yeah i think that's a great example or analogy of the muscle kind of developing a muscle i mean this is another way to talk about uh, cultivating virtue is you have to find those the sort of adequate tension so that our muscles or our courage or our nonviolence or our justice our empathy can can grow and be stretched. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that that virtue gets developed in our kind of ordinary life with the basic choices that we make. And this is why one of the the key things with active nonviolence is uh, not just being aware and uh, attentive in our relationships, but actually going through training. So. Mm-hmm. You know, Martin Luther King, the civil rights movements, they had all sorts of trainings. Today, there are trainings on, like, nonviolent communication skills Mm -hmm. and bystander intervention skills, restorative justice processes and circles, um, unarmed civilian protection skills and how to deploy as a team or unit to neighborhood situations or demonstrations as a community safety unit. Um, So there's all these really important skills that go along with kind of developing the habit or the muscle of, of active nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Meyer referred to it as a, as a muscle and it had to be worked out like any other muscle. I love your phraseology uh, about stretching one's empathy. For those who are listening right now, give me your best advice, uh, your great suggestions on how we can in 2024 stretch our empathy, stretch our empathy. Empathy, not our sympathy, not the same thing, right? Empathy, putting yourself in somebody's shoes, sympathy, feeling sorry for them. Note uh, that uh, Professor McCarthy didn't say stretch your sympathy. He said stretch your empathy. How do we do that, though? So? 
Yeah. So, yeah. Um, different way. Are you asking me that question? Yeah, I'm asking you. Yeah, yeah. How do I? Yeah, yeah that was yeah. your that was your phrase. I said, <laughs> I said I said I love the phrase stretching one's empathy. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. asking you, what's your best advice in 2024? How we go about stretching our empathy? Yeah. So I think there's a number of great kind of practices. So one practice is kind of drawn from this practice of nonviolent communication, where we try to be aware of not just what the other person or the other group is perhaps feeling, like what's behind their sort of position or their argument, but even deeper than that, what are some of the unmet needs that the other person is trying to meet by their by their strategy or the political position? So often what we say and what we do in our lives are strategies to get different needs met. And we may or may not be aware of these needs and the work we do or the conflicts we're in, but they can be needs like respect or acknowledgement or being heard or being seen or belonging or clarity or safety. There's a whole list of needs at uh, the DC Peace Team uh, website, dcpeaceteam.org. There's a, a needs chart. And growing in empathy is, in large part, becoming more attuned to what are the deeper needs underneath somebody's position or strategy. And that includes, like, what are our deeper needs in a particular conflict? So that kind of practice can help us grow in empathy. And then we can make proposals or requests Mm -hmm. um, for strategies or actions or policies that are more in tune with actually getting the needs met. Uh, rather than getting caught up in, you know, trying to uh, win the argument or beat the other person or uh, attain victory, whatever that might be mm-hmm. about. So mm-hmm. listening to the deeper needs and then developing policies and strategies in tune with those needs are are pretty critical. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, that's one pretty important practice. I think another important practice is obviously... Um, encountering people in different spaces and from different perspectives, right? Not getting so caught up in just being with our our own folks or listening to uh, stories or media or reading about things that tend to sort of agree with where we're we're at in the moment, but really encountering these different people and communities and cultures and positions. I'm glad you raised that because that's a lot easier said than done. When we come forward, I want to come back to that point of how it is that we go about encountering different people in different spaces. Uh, as I put it, uh, being willing to re-examine the assumptions that we hold, being willing to expand our inventory of ideas. We'll talk about that when we come forward. We'll talk about restorative justice. He's used that phrase a few times. It's a very popular phrase these days. I'm not sure we know what we mean, though, when we say restorative justice. We'll get him to define that in real time. We'll talk about truth um, and the role of truth uh, and its connection to nonviolence. Uh, to justice and peace. We'll talk about respect. Uh, A great deal more to talk about in this conversation with uh, Georgetown Professor Elias McCarthy. We're talking broadly uh, about uh, nonviolence, but uh, as he put it so beautifully, uh, broadening our moral imagination. Can we in 2024 broaden our moral imagination? More with Professor Elias McCarthy on Tavis Smiley when we come forward. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. If you're like me, 60 and retired, making ends meet, 
Especially here at the supermarket and drugstore is tough. I'm so blessed to have found BenefitsCheckup.org. It's a free and confidential website from the National Council on Aging that connected me to $1,200 a year in programs that help pay for food, medicine, utilities, and more. Maybe it can help you. BenefitsCheckup.org My daughter was diagnosed with a rare malignant rhabdoid tumor on the spine. They sent her straight to St. Jude. My hope was gone. But when you get there, everyone's like, hey, we're not going to give up. And when you see other people not giving up on your child, that makes all the difference in the world. When I found out I didn't have to pay, I was just grateful. They saved my baby's life. Finding Cures, Saving Children. Learn more at stjude.org. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Our guest is a distinguished professor at Georgetown. His name is Elias McCarthy. He teaches justice and peace studies at uh, Georgetown. Go Hoyas. Uh, and uh, we are discussing in this hour uh, nonviolence um, as a practical tool for social change, talking in this hour about broadening our moral imagination in this year as we move toward the King holiday um, what say uh, the nation uh, about nonviolence uh, as a practical strategy these days? Uh, I've told this story before, Professor McCarthy. I said to you again, uh, right quick. I once interviewed Bibi Netanyahu uh, in one of his earlier iterations as Prime Minister of Israel, and we had a pretty uh, testy conversation one day when I asked him about uh, nonviolence as an option <laughs> in the Middle East. Uh, and he uh, sort of uh, laughed it off and then, you know, came at me and said to me that uh, as I was quoting King and laying out King's philosophy, uh, I'm a King student. I've written a book about King, uh, a best-selling book about King. So I, I know the subject rather well and was, was pressing uh, B.B. Uh, on this issue of nonviolence. And King, uh, he said to me, B.B. did, that King did not know Hezbollah, that King did not know Al-Qaeda, that King did not know Hamas. And as you can imagine, when he said that, I went off. Uh, we we went off the rails <laughs> in the conversation. Uh, I, I I said to somebody the other day, I almost in that moment lost my Kingian commitment to nonviolence in that dialogue with Bibi Netanyahu. But I, I digress on that point. But I, I raise it in part because, as I said earlier, when you when you raise the issue of nonviolence these days, people will laugh at you. They don't take it seriously. They do not believe. Never mind all the examples of the power of nonviolence. They don't believe it is still pregnant with that kind of power in real time and that it would not work in situations like Hamas and Hezbollah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when you are confronted with that kind of, that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of uh, narrative, uh, how do you push back? How do you respond? Yeah, well, that sounds like quite a conversation you had there with Bibi. Um, <laughs> it was, yeah. It was. You know, there are... Uh, there's a number of different ways to respond. Sometimes people resonate with stories, and we can tell a number of stories. Uh, sometimes people resonate with data. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the book that came out in 2011 called Why Civilian Resistance Works was done by um, two uh, female authors who looked at nonviolent and violent resistance movements from 1900 to 2006. They looked at over 300 movements uh, with particular objectives like uh, resisting a unjust regime and occupation, uh, trying to have self-determination and so forth. But 
what they found was that nonviolent movements were actually twice as effective as violent resistance movements. Mm-hmm. That's just in terms of obtaining their short-term political objectives. When they looked at the longer term, they found that nonviolent resistance was actually at least 10 times more likely to lead to durable democracy. That is, it cultivates the habits and the skills and the participants to have a more durable or sustainable kind of just peace. Whereas even in those rare moments where violent resistance may have gotten rid of a a certain leader or won a certain political victory, it almost inevitably turned in to a cycle of harm and violence through civil war or corruption or coups and so forth. So, I mean, if you look at, you know, the Israel-Palestine situation right now, it's another striking example of how when leaders really prioritize violent military strategies, what they end up getting is cycles and cycles of horrendous violence and harm and generational trauma. Mm-hmm. And so it's a pretty, you know, clear indicator of how violence, um, even though it gets prioritized, almost always turns into these cycles of violence and doesn't really work in any kind of sustainable way. Use the word respect. I mean, in terms of like... No, in terms of... No, finish, please. In terms of... Go ahead, go ahead. In terms of... Well, just in terms of particular examples related to non-state terrorist networks, and, you know, we want to be clear that states can also participate in terrorism. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like the non-state actors, like even ISIS, for example, there are amazing stories of active nonviolence being used uh, in the to resist ISIS, where, you know, uh, Iraqis and Syrians were um, using non-cooperation, where, for example, there was um, a Syrian woman in Raqqa, which was kind of the headquarters at one point for ISIS, that she started, she was upset about the um, ISIS kind of detaining certain political prisoners, and she started to demonstrate on her own, and she got kind of spit at, yelled at, and threatened with a gun, and then other women teachers that were like her started to protest and demonstrate, and they were able to kind of freeze the ISIS leadership in that spot, because they were these locals, and they ended up getting a number of prisoners kind of released. Mm. And then in Mosul, there was uh, research done where like over 80% of residents of Mosul participated in some form of nonviolent, non-cooperation um, that got, that kind of undermined ISIS's legitimacy and ability to kind of maintain their injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, anywhere from, you know, people uh, shaving their beards or... Um, playing music when they shouldn't have, to not paying taxes, or to kind of slowing down the administrative work that ISIS needed to kind mm. of continue things. So there's you, all sorts of powerful examples. You, you mentioned this earlier. I want to come to it right quick. I'm watching my time here. Um, you kind of went right past it, but since you're running this list of examples where nonviolence still works, um, you mentioned Liberia. For those who haven't heard that story, tell the story about the Liberian women right quick. 
Yeah, I mean, this is amazing. You have a really intense civil war going on between a government and kind of a, a, a violent resistance movement that was trying to overthrow Charles Tick-Tick. Charles Taylor, who had been a dictator for a number of years. Um, the communities are running and fleeing, and all sorts of horrendous sexual assaults and killings are happening. And these uh, women from the Christian and the Muslim communities join together to say, you know, they had enough of all this running and seeing their children um, killed and taken into war and so forth. And they so they started to demonstrate and they started to build up their sense of unity and courage by different types of tactics. Taylor kind of ignored them for a while, and then eventually they got so large, he finally kind of met with them, and they made their demands, and, you know, they continued to kind of... um, The war sort of continued on, but at a certain point they were able to... um, get enough pressure on Taylor and the resistant, the armed resistance to go to negotiating table, but they were just kind of stalling at the negotiating table. So finally, one of the climatic moments was one of the leaders, Lema Bowie, who eventually won the Nobel Peace Prize. That's right. Yeah. Her and about um, probably 50 other women were at the negotiating building, basically a hotel, and they did a sit-in and they blocked the doors and they didn't let the guys out until they, you know, agreed to like come to some commitments in a certain timeline. And one of the security guards came up to her and tried to just arrest her and, you know, move her out of there. And what she did was amazing. She, she used this sort of cultural power where if a woman in that culture intentionally strips in front of you, is supposed to be this massive curse. So she starts to take her clothes off and, you know, say, I'm going to continue with this if you don't kind of back off. And the security guard backs off and the leader of the negotiating team comes out and they have a little, they form an agreement. Um, You know, then some of the other folks who are trying to kind of slow down the deal, tried to sneak out the windows, and the police said, hey, you should send some women over here to, to block them, right? So it totally turns. Yeah, They eventually get the agreement, and it leads to the first uh, woman being elected president in a African country. And that's exactly how that story ended. It's an amazing story. Uh, boy, I, I interviewed when she won the Nobel Peace Prize some years ago. It's an amazing story, and he's absolutely right. Uh, that nonviolent tactic uh, by those black women in Liberia led to the first woman being elected president of Liberia. It's quite a story. More with uh, Professor Elias McCarthy when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis, Tavis Smiley. Ranked number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. What is dedication? My biggest fear in the middle of my addiction was that my kids wouldn't have a father. And I started thinking, you know what? This isn't my story. I definitely had to become a better man to be a better father. It's important to me that my kids are empowered and truly believe that if if they can think it, they can do it. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Joey from Vermont. A farmer trying to get through the winter. Adriana from South Carolina. A single mother living paycheck to paycheck. Liam from Ohio, 
an injured father struggling to provide for his family. Hi, I'm Shanola Hampton, and I support the Feeding America network of food banks because they help provide over 6 billion meals to people in need each year. Learn more at feedingamerica.org. So, what are you doing this Friday morning? How about you come join the KBLA delegation as we make a historic announcement and unveil our climate justice campaign for 2024. We'll be assembled for this major press conference along with L.A. Mayor Karen Bass, Ben Jealous, Executive Director of the Sierra Club, and a host of other public and private leaders who are joining us on this journey to justice, climate justice. We can't think of a better way to kick off the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend, linking social justice and climate justice. So, come join us this Friday morning at 1030 a.m. at the beautiful MLK Memorial Tree Grove at the top of Kenneth Hahn Park off La Cienega. Once again, that's this Friday morning, January 12th at 1030 a.m. as we take on the task of elevating the climate conversation by amplifying the voices of those who are most impacted by the climate catastrophes we are all witnessing in real time. KBLA Delegation, we hope to see you this Friday morning at KBLA Talk 1580. Climate is king. Climate is king. Climate is king. Climate is king. Spilled your drink? Quick, the quicker picker-upper. Bounty picks up spills quicker. And each sheet is two times more absorbent, so you can use less than the leading ordinary brand. So, you can get back to your night. Bounty, the quicker picker-upper. Did you know that feeling sluggish or weighed down could be a sign that your digestive system isn't working at its best? Taking Metamucil every day can help. Metamucil fiber powders help promote your daily digestive health using a plant-based fiber called psyllium. The gelling action of this special fiber traps and removes waste so you can feel lighter and more energetic. Metamucil, promoting digestive health for a better you. Learn more at metamucil.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Watching the clock here, Professor McCarthy, as my time is getting away from me, let me ask you a few things right quicker. Number one, you've used the phrase restorative justice a number of times in this conversation. You can't talk about uh, nonviolence as a practical tool for social change or broadening our moral imagination these days. Without hearing that phrase, restorative justice, everybody uses it. When you use it, you mean what? Yeah, this is a really critical question. So by restorative justice, uh, we mean focusing on the harm done to relationships and how to heal that harm. And that includes not just interpersonal, but what needs to be changed about the structures or the systems and so forth. So it's different than like a retributive justice approach, which is a little more common, which means who do we blame and how do we punish or mm. kind of inflict suffering on that person? And this is the predominant model in our, you know, criminal justice system in the U.S., which led to mass incarceration and the death penalty and all sorts of unhelpful habits and harm. Yeah. Uh, restorative justice, not retributive justice. That's the order of the day. Um, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, um, or I mentioned earlier, this notion of, of truth. 
and and I, and I wonder, and I don't want to color this question much more than this. It's a broad question. Uh, so, matter of fact, let me just pose it now. When we come forward, I'll let you respond to it. But I, I'm I'm thinking about the notion of truth. You can't think about King and the holiday. You can't think about King and nonviolence without hearing King say repeatedly that it's ultimately about unarmed truth and unconditional love unarmed truth and unconditional love. Just as you link justice and peace, he linked unarmed truth and unconditional love. We'll talk about that part, as we say, when we come forward with Georgetown Professor Elias McCarthy on Tavis Smiley. Seeking the truth, the truth. Speaking, speaking the truth. The truth. This, this is the Tavis, Tavis Smiley, Smiley Show. If you're like me, 60 and retired, making ends meet, Especially here at the supermarket and drugstore is tough. I'm so blessed to have found BenefitsCheckup.org. It's a free and confidential website from the National Council on Aging that connected me to $1,200 a year in programs that help pay for food, medicine, utilities, and more. Maybe it can help you. BenefitsCheckup.org. My daughter was diagnosed with a rare malignant rhabdoid tumor on the spine. They sent us straight to St. Jude. My hope was gone. But when you get there, everyone's like, hey, we're not going to give up. And when you see other people not giving up on your child, that makes all the difference in the world. When I found out I didn't have to pay, I was just grateful. They saved my baby's life. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Just three minutes left here. Just uh, three minutes left here with uh, Professor Elias McCarthy of Georgetown. And I want to offer this, I think, as the exit question. You were talking earlier about um, the fact that we have to be willing to encounter different people in different spaces. And as I mentioned a moment ago, King talked often of unarmed truth and unconditional love. And I want to link those two things. It seems to me that if we're if, if the if the answer to the problems that we face is to encounter different people in different spaces, but there isn't a fundamental foundation of unarmed truth and unconditional love when we meet these different people in these different spaces, then we just get together, but ain't nothing really gonna happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could just link those two things for me. Yeah. So, you know, with, with nonviolence in King or Gandhi or Lama Bowie and so forth, you know, it's nonviolence was understood as the way to illuminate or to light up the truth of our equal dignity mm-hmm. or for King, our sacred dignity. Right, that we were created out of a God who loves us. And nonviolence is that way to illuminate that truth and that love that we are all gifts. We've all been created by something other than ourselves. We all live as gifts, so when we encounter others, we are encountering other gifts and that we are this one kind of human family. Mm. So let me share this short story of David who was taking part in the sit-ins in Northern Virginia in the 60s. He was at a lunch counter. He had been spit on and hit, and this guy breaks into the restaurant, runs up to David and puts a knife at his heart. And he says, you got one minute to get out of here. I'm going to run this knife through your heart. And David 
pauses and he says, brother, you do what you think you have to, and I'm going to try to love you just the same. And the man with the knife, he started to shake his hand and he backed up and he ran out of the restaurant. And a couple of days later, the restaurant was desegregated. But David was able to resist the injustice while also signaling the dignity of the other person. And that is, uh, that's the trick. Um, it's a powerful story, and you, you, you told it beautifully, and I love your, your preface to it, that we uh, live as gifts. And when we encounter other people, we encountering we are encountering other gifts. Beautifully, beautifully said. His name is Eli S. McCarthy. He is a professor at Georgetown, where he teaches justice and peace studies. And I have delighted in this conversation. I've learned a great deal, as I always do. As I say all the time, I walk out of this studio every day, smarter, uh, more empowered, more enlightened than when I came in. Uh, and the takeaway for me from this conversation, and there are many, but it is the challenge that each of us has living as gifts in 2024 to find ways to broaden our moral imagination. I'm going to hold on to that phrase from Professor McCarthy for the rest of the day. And uh, I'm sure a few weeks from now, I'll act like it was my own phrase, like I invented it, like I first said it, even though you all heard uh, Professor McCarthy say it first. But that's our challenge this year, to broaden our moral imagination. Professor McCarthy, I'm delighted, as I said earlier, in this conversation. It's an amazing uh, dialogue. Thank you for your time, and I wish you all the best this year, my friend. Thank you so much for having me, Travis, and thanks for all the amazing work you do on your show. You are kind. Thank you for your, for your, for your words. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Thank you for joining us, everyone. 